0: This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture.
1: So, Stuck in the Present How History Frees and Forms Christians. Why Stuck in the Present?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I drew for some reason, uh, no pun intended, but when I was thinking about a title, originally the title for the book was Making Connections, subtitle, Linking Responsibly to the Past. I'd I use that in notes for this stuff that I've been teaching on, the very thing that became the book. It was bound together. I was starting, as you know, as an author, you start to get attached to it. And I've gone, making connections. That's kind of cool. You know, linking responsibly to the past. I, I really like that. And then the editor wisely, but I was grousing for a couple hours after he told me, she so he goes, you know, your title isn't quite punchy enough. You know, it's just not, it just doesn't really get to the meat, I think, of what you're trying to say and the urgency. So I like the book, book's accepted, the, the you know, the content's fine but you need a different title so i went upstairs to our library and i was thinking about it and immediately the word stuck got stuck literally in my mm. mind but i couldn't get any further mm. came down stairs saw my wife said you know editor wants a new title stuck is kind of the word i've got so that's great and she pretty quickly said how about stuck in the present i said that's wow. genius. That that's yeah. it. That's it. So we're sharing royalties. I just want you to know 50/50, <laughs> right? She's got a bigger word count cuz I only had one, she had three words, so maybe I right. should prorate it. But reason why I'm stuck in the present is because I would say and a lot of people have described this phenomenon but I would say it's pretty clear that our cultural moment in which we're living in the United States has never had such an unbelievably toxic combination of ignorance and arrogance at the same mm-hmm. time most people know very little about very few things yet feel this unbelievable compulsion that they're somehow an expert on a whole you know series of issues um, and I'll just say here's a classic example i I kind of picture I have these uh Fantasies, if you will, these intellectual fantasies. (laughs) And here's one. The voting right stuff in 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 Georgia that were really controversial. Um, those on the right predictably said there's nothing racist about it. It's just totally like other laws, it's no big deal, it's a nothing burger. Those on the left fairly predictably said it's racist, it's wrong, etc. I would like to get 50 people of both sides, put them in a room, let them go after each other, racist, no, not racist. And then about five minutes into it, blow the whistle and say, okay, all I'm really interested in is how many of you just raise your hand and they have to tell the truth. How many of you read the almost 100 page document that delineates the details of what this is all about? Mm. Or how many of you are getting stuff from social media, your favorite cable news station, which I would say again, to be stuck in the present, the primary ways for some, the exclusive ways, sadly, that they get quote news information is social media you know the outrage du jour in their own little echo chamber wherever they were with their facebook or whatever and cable news their cable station of choice so we're in a pretty bad place it's no wonder there's so much divisiveness even in the church
1: I think the uh, the stuck versus I think of liberal arts is the liberating arts, right? And I love teaching uh, historical theology to undergrads because uh, especially Christian undergrads that were raised in a strong theological tradition is almost all of them come into a course like that or they come in, you know, they go away to college and, and some of them have this very strong well, my church's theology is the right. I'll, I'll, I'll entertain some other theology, but mine is really the right one. Um, and then you start, you know, in Jewish thought, and then Christological controversies, and and you realize, oh, it it, it took a while for the canon to kind of settle into place and uh, to be formed, and it took a right. while for them to figure out how long uh, or how, what Jesus was, what kind of a thing he was, why was he here, how does he relate to the Holy Spirit and the Father. And what you see is by the end of it, it is essentially people who are ideologues theologically, right? They just have an ideology that they're following. All of a sudden, you know, and so for some of them, it's emotionally painful, but all of a sudden are able to see the wider horizon of human thought, which liberates them from being stuck in ideology. Is that something like what you're referring to?
2: A- absolutely. I mean, my example, and there's a lot of them I could think of, but that I think about pretty readily in that kind of. Uh, example that you gave is I was teaching church history and I wasn't planning on this. I had no idea exactly where people were at on some views of theological systems. But as we were getting to kind of last times, you know, people call it eschatology, uh, that sort of thing, how we understand what's going to happen at the end, ushering in the kingdom of God, et cetera. um, I mentioned that One of the reasons that, even though I went to Dallas Seminary, one of my degrees from Dallas Seminary, that I've, I'm I'm agnostic on these sort of things, is that dispensationalism. I was just explaining, just historically, it just starts to really emerge in 19th century Scotland, and historically, that just seems rather odd. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, even can I stop
1: you and and point out the the fact that you went to Dallas Seminary is not is not inconsequential to what you're saying here. So Dallas Seminary is very well known, uh, right. especially in the, I guess the seventies and eighties of buying into a very particular view of eschatology.
2: Yeah. And they've modified that over the years, yeah. as you know, and, and there's more compatibility with so-called covenant theology. And there's been good conversations with people like at Westminster and people like Daryl Bach and yeah. Lanier yeah. Burns and others at Dallas. But Um, Even Dr. Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, as some of your listeners will recognize from the Ryrie Study Bible, he wrote a lot on dispensationalism, dispensationalism today. And even in that book concedes that, you know, you see maybe premillennialism with Justin Martyr, but as far as dispensationalism, that variety, that iteration of premillennialism, which I won't get into all the details with that, but it's just a more specific way of separating the church from the, from, from the, uh, Israel and promises who they're for and, and kind of being delineated, you know, in different groups and stuff. So I share this in this class that, you know, it kind of emerges out of this, you know, 19th century context, Darby and others. Um, and an older man, uh, in his eighties is now deceased had been studying his Schofield reference Bible. Schofield, of course, a popularizer of dispensationalism. America had grown up dear guy. We were good friends. And he came up to me and he said, I've been believing this for 50 plus years. And, And yet he was feeling the weight of what I was saying. So he's really struggling trying to how do I make sense of this? I've held this view for 50 plus years and it's been meaningful in my study of the Bibles and to the degree that I've studied the Bible, which is for him was pretty diligent. And so, yeah, I think I, I would say one thing just kind of from a macro standpoint, maybe a good kind of context thing. I think most, you know, Jacques Allou, the French uh, sociologist said that the reason why propaganda is so popular is because we don't really, you know, kind of Jack Nicholson, like we don't really, we don't want the truth. We can't (laughs) handle the truth. And propaganda tends to a lot of times be more desirable and seems to be more like, well, that's kind of what I want. And the appeal of propagandists know that they appeal to certain instincts, maybe base instincts that we have to try to get traction, that their view makes sense and is the right one. And, and as you probably know, the you know the mathane pathane, the Greek saying, you know, to learn is to suffer, uh, because as Luke Johnson says, a New Testament scholar at Emory, that uh, real learning puts us initially in a state of disequilibrium, where we're kind of going, "Whoa, I thought this was true. Now I'm finding out that's true," and yet I'm kind of vested in this view. So I think to be a real learner, it's freeing. The truth will set you free, as Jesus says. But there is a sense of vulnerability of having your hands open and saying, I'm willing to not only receive new information that I've never thought about, but I'm willing to be corrected.
1: There are so many good things in what you just said there. Um, so even that that mix of You know, dispensationalism, which if you want the really hyper popularized version, the left behind rapturist theology is what really popular in the United States and actually is taken off in other countries as well. Um, But somebody coming to the Bible with that belief. And so you can walk through the scriptures themselves and say, like, actually, this doesn't seem to be quite what's going on in the biblical text. There seems to be some other logic to what's being said here. So you can do the Bible study. But the, the part that you noted that I thought was interesting is um, this has only been around since the 1800s, right? And from Scotland, when I I personally have lived in Scotland a few years, so yeah, uh, uh, so that makes it a little suspect. And then uh, and then it and then it kind of takes fire to, in, in in American uh, theology and, and a particular strand of American theology. Does that necessarily make something? problematic. I mean, we're talking about a reading of scripture. I really appreciate the fact because I had this as a pastor as well when I shared some things that I thought was going on in the scripture and had 80 year olds who knew the Bible better than I did said, you know, I really had never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And now I'm rethinking everything, uh, you know, going back through the Bible in my mind, thinking through and I really just deeply appreciated that. Who would also lovingly correct me where I had misunderstood something in scripture sure. as well. Sure. Um, but does does that automatically make it problematic if it's new in America? And I'm specifically thinking of well, Cara, the charismatic movement is largely new in America, and Azusa Street, and you know, sure. uh, 20th century and beyond. So, do we want what? What do you? What's your biggest argument uh, I, I, in either direction? I guess
2: I I think it doesn't give it like a, a slam dunk, like it's problematic. I think it does put maybe more of the burden of proof. I mean, because all of us appreciate the development of doctrine. The doctrine unfolds progressively. Um, you know, the all the early councils dealing with the person, nature of Christ, His work, uh, the Trinitarian clarification, the Cappadocians, and others who gave great clarity to what. If you, I often think of Drew that the a, a good theologian is a good juggler, meaning mm. that he or she is able to really look comprehensively at the scriptures, not privilege one part over the other. Kind of like what Paul says in Acts 20 when he's leading the elders at Miletus. He says, I didn't hold anything back from you. I, I gave you the whole counsel of God. So knowing comprehensively the word of God, knowing how much emphasis to place on certain truths. This is obviously already a tall order, right? Right, right. And then every ball represents a different significant truth. And it's kind of like when you're a young Christian, you find out you get one ball that says God's loving and God's forgiving, and that's cool. And you get a couple other balls and you find out more about God. And then finally, someone takes you hopefully by the hand and says, well, actually, you know, this is kind of where you start. But There's actually a warehouse I want to take you to, and you go to this Mm -hmm. warehouse, and it seems like it's almost limitless. That there's just stacked floor to ceiling balls there, maybe different sizes, but uh, being able to juggle all that. And so, I think on you know the burden of proof, I would say yes would be there is progress of doctrine, Um, but I would want to put that in somewhat of a tension point with Irenaeus about that if you're an innovator of doctrine that you're probably in trouble right Mm -hmm. so innovation in a radical sense is problematic you know i had a guy recently by the way say to me a view that he thought was really new and and uh and it was painful because he had spent a lot of money taken off work for several years and spent all this money literally hundreds of thousands of dollars To in essence come to a semi Aryan view. And again, I won't, it's basically a less than Orthodox view of Jesus. And I had to tell them that, well, actually, this isn't new what you're describing, this is an older thing. And so so I think there's some tension points for sure. There is progress in doctrine. You know, John Henry Newman on the Catholic side talked about this, Protestants talk about it. Uh, It's manifest in historical theology. But I think the lateness of actually dispensationalism, again, I'm agnostic. I I have friends who are very at Dallas Seminary. My wife speaks at Dallas Seminary every year. And so several professors there are dear friends. Hmm. Um, They're pretty convinced of a certain iteration of that. I'm just more like, you may be right. And if we get to heaven and find out you're right, I'm not disillusioned. I just have some questions.
1: I'm a pan-eschatologist, We're all going to pan <laughs> so. That's right. That's a safe one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's from my former senior
0: pastor. <laughs> hello, hello. My name is Ari Lam, and I'm the host of Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society. Conversations feel like they've become so predictable nowadays. You open up Twitter, turn on the news, or even just strike up a conversation with your friends and you probably feel like you more or less know exactly what people are gonna say before they even say it. So Good Faith Effort is all about having those conversations that you literally will not hear anywhere else. Wanna hear the former head of publicity at Def Jam Records and a legend in the world of hip hop talk about how Abraham in the book of Genesis helps him see Run DMC in a new light? Want to hear a leading VC in Silicon Valley talk about how the prophet Isaiah informs her work? Want to hear a reporter for the New York Times talk about why she's converting to Judaism, or a best-selling author and professor of the humanities talk about why she decided to convert to Catholicism? Want to hear an Oscar-winning producer and leading podcaster reflect on how religion can save the American soul? Well, all I can say is subscribe to Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a listen. And listen in to the inspiring, fun, crazy conversations that you wouldn't hear anywhere else.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about how we think about history today. Um, And I think uh, the word that I've heard that I think accurately describes what most people think is, is, is factitional. Um, Mm -hmm. and it reminded me as I was reading through your book, there was a, and I couldn't not find it. I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it uh, quickly, but there's a, an anthropological study of children done, I think somewhere in Kansas in the early 1900s, where they just said, Hey, we're just going to go record everything that kids in this small town do. And so they had anthropologists stationed in, in homes, like measuring how long they, they took 27 seconds to brush their teeth. And apparently, there are just hundreds of journal volumes full of this data because they thought at the end of this, they were going to now understand children somehow, to put it very crassly. I'm sure they thought a lot more than that. But they essentially thought they were going to understand American children child behavior by doing this, uh, and essentially, it became an unwieldy mass of information Mm -hmm. they couldn't do anything with. Right Um, now, you said "Wow!" as if you're shocked by that. What's what's so shocking? Because I think that's how a lot of people think about history. It's just a mass of data.
2: Yes, I I think what's helpful is using. uh, You remember from the book that Donald Kagan, the eminent classicist who's at Yale, says there's a big difference between being a chronicler and a historian. You know, you think about like at a church. You know, the person who's dutifully taking the minutes. Okay, George just led off in prayer. Eight. Mm -hmm to 8.3. Then we had a little devotional from Fred. Fred went from 8.03 to 8.11. And you, that's a chronicler, right? And Kagan, and then I asked, um, you know, Wilfred McClay, the eminent historians at OU, wrote a terrific American history survey, Land of Hope. I asked him what he thought about, you know, Kagan making this point about, There's a big difference between being a chronicler and a historian, because a historian is not telling you absolutely everything that happened. You know, Abraham Lincoln, when he heard this bad report about this war, blew his nose three times. Now, it's possible that blowing his nose three times could have some relevance and could be impinging, it could be, you know, if there was, if we found out that every time Abraham uh, Lincoln blew his nose three times, it showed we could prove that he was under great duress. Then it would have significance because it would be impactful for like, wow, that really did bring out a lot of stress. Or conversely, when he heard a report that was pretty dire and he only blew his nose two times, but we knew that the three times blowing the nose was under duress. We'd go, wow, it's interesting that that did not, maybe he's more comfortable with his role that'd be significant. So a historian is really being has to be selective with the record and say what meaningfully keeps the story accurate in the big picture and what gives people a meaningful retrieval of what accurately happened. Uh, Obviously, a lot of details are lopped off, you know, and um,
1: is it fair to say? Oh, sorry. No, go uh, ahead. Is it, is it fair to say that really most of the details are left? I mean, really, yes. They're they're absolutely whittling down to just the, the what you need, right? Yeah, absolutely.
2: And the gospel is a classic example. Many other things were, were said and done. Yeah. These have been written in order that you may believe. And so, right there, selectivity is it, God saying, Look, this these are the seminal details. This is what you need to really understand who Christ is, what he did, how that becomes effectual for you and what it means to live a meaningful Christian life. But holy cow, there are all kinds of things that happen. I mean, you know, people speculate, was Jesus a jokester? I think some of these things get a little bit silly after a while. But but certainly we know just by travels and stuff, we don't have, you know, a lot of the conversations that obviously happened over meals, et cetera. Um, who knows what was said. And so, hmm. uh, for whatever reason, the Holy spirit said, these are germane to move the story forward.
1: Hmm. So, uh, where are, where are we as far as history education in America today? Why do you think, I mean, you're obviously diagnosing a huge problem stuck in the present again is, uh, this idea that, uh, without a roots in history that we're always going mis- to misunderstand the present. Um, but where are we now, and what are some very palpable, easy reach ways out? What are, you know, what if you had a pastor, yeah. or somebody who's leading a small classical school or something? What would you say? Here's what. Here's the kinds of things you need to be doing.
2: Well, I would say one thing is, uh, you know, using from a pedagogical standpoint, from a standpoint of teaching philosophy and stuff, I would say that the problem is that we don't. Whatever we're trying to learn, whether it's auto mechanics, music, history, the Bible, et cetera, it's enormously prudent and helpful, practically helpful, if we get the big picture down first and we, from a ground level, build up. So I kind of often think about there's, and I've had these conversations. I, I, you know, if I was a betting man, I could make a lot of money, but. I could go around to evangelical churches, people that have been sitting under great teaching for 20, 30, 40 years and say, tap them on the shoulder and and everyone's got to agree to tell me the truth and tap and say, okay, we we sing Hosanna all the time in this church and we sing hallelujah all the time in the church. What's the difference? Why does it matter? I know they're easy to sing to and dance to or whatever, but is there a demonstrable difference between one? And obviously there are, um, you know, between praise and basically salvation. And so, or I raise my Ebenezer to you. You know, we sing that in that song all the time. And I've had some people sheepishly come to me and say, what does that mean? You know? Um, So with history, I would say it would be wise to make sure that people really understand the big picture first, flow of ideas, big periods. Uh, The illustration I give in the book is first time I was learning how to use a computer from this graduate student, Stanford, I said, look, don't assume I know anything about a computer. I do know a little bit about a computer, but I want you to assume nothing. I know that the keypad mimics the typewriter, and I know the difference in hardware and software, but I really want you to just build me up from ground level. So -hmm. I'd say one thing is just kind of a teaching philosophy that pastors need to be more aware of, okay, maybe I've been kind of going off talking about pre-exilic prophets when I'm teaching Jeremiah and people are going, I know there's an... There's two exiles, right? And their pastor's off making a point and they're thinking, is he talking about Assyria before Assyria or before Babylon? And they're already kind of preoccupied with that. And then he's going off making another point about a major prophet versus a minor prophet. They're going, is that a more important prophet or less important? And so they're just like confused. You'd
1: be lucky if in your congregation, people even knew what an exile was, I think. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I know, and that's and, and we're talking about, again, great places where they maybe heard the book of Ephesians taught in its total, Romans, all these things. So I'm a big believer and let's get the big picture and start connecting the dots because then when you start to build, you can build more responsibly. So um, and then with Christian schools and others, I would say after there's a really solid grounding, uh, and this will be different from place to place, but I think you need to have some conversation partners that push you and trouble you and keep you honest. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I'm writing on right now, has been mine for many years, and I'm uh, co-authoring a book with uh, Professor uh, Michael and who's an expert in Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards. And so he's playing Edwards, I'm playing Emerson, and I get to ask him through these letters, kind of Peter Crave style the, all the things that bug me about the Christian faith. Hmm. And Emerson is an incredible writer. He frustrates me a lot of times, but he keeps me honest. You know, some people might pick Nietzsche at an appropriate time, whoever they pick. So I would say once you get grounded, try to not stay in your echo chamber, try to go out. And, you know, if you've just been reading for 30 years, John Calvin and kind of reformers that kind of basically fit your paradigm of what's true that's fine to be edified and i've read a lot of the puritans and my wife has as well very edified by the writings uh you know i have certainly a bunch of questions about them too but um i just think we need to go outside and um but i think starting first getting that grounding and then kind of building from there
1: almost like a uh, glocal thinking, you know, think, uh, or think globe, global act locally, you know, yes. have, a, have an outline, a global outline of what's going on in this yep. period of history. And then, and then think about the discrete stories and how they fit in that outline. end of this book, you have some appendices, uh, yes. some case studies, um, which were all very interesting, uh, very good. And But then when oh, I yes. got to this one, I, I stopped in my tracks, uh, which I would not have thought I would have seen in a book on history and thinking historically, uh, raising some concerns over the inductive method of Bible study. So I, I know quite literally hundreds of people who benefited deeply from the inductive uh, Bible study method. Um, a, what is that method? Uh, as, as far as you're concerned and, and B, what would be your concern? Okay. Um, so again, back
2: to my Dallas seminary days, Howard Hendricks, who some of your listeners will recognize the beloved longtime, uh, professor there at Dallas seminary taught biblical studies, uh, and a biblical a Bible study methods and hermeneutics. So, um, Taught us this method that had already been kind of popularized. That you look at a text, you don't try to determine what it means. You try to say, "What do I see?" And Agassiz Fish, the professor at Harvard, uh, had this famous saying: "Look at the fish." And he would get people just to, you know, try to bombard it with all the things that they observed, that they saw. You know, it's got these kind of scales. It's got this kind of, you know, beginning this kind of fin, et cetera, et cetera. And when they felt like they had exhausted all that, and they were exhausted, they uh, were told by Professor Agassiz, keep looking, because he would say, there's still things you have not seen, right? And until you see those things, you're not going to make meaningful connections to really interpret what they mean and apply them accordingly. So that kind of thinking is used with the Bible, like let's, you know, the famous example of Dallas Seminary that Hendricks would use is Acts 1.8. Let's look at you know what do you see there? The contrast and all the different things going on, the the pattern of movement out and all this kind of stuff. And then, based on bombarding it with observations, you can then make more accurate interpretations. What does it mean? And then apply it to your life. And then even correlation correlate it with other verses. Um, it's not that it's a bad method. It's just that. Saying it's the best method or the only method, I think kind of raises concerns because it's naive to the fact that when I'm observing, I have, as you philosophers know, I mean, I've got, I can't extra, I can't get away from the fact that I've got pre-understandings that I bring to it. I'm not a robot. I'm not a detached robot that's just sitting there. Okay. What's the data? What's the data? Here I am just to feed the data. Um, I've got assumptions, and so let's say I come to Acts 1.8 and I'm a pretty convinced person that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, and so I'm bringing that, whether I like it or not, whether I'm aware of it or not, I'm bringing that to the text, and that's affecting maybe how carefully I'm really observing. So I think it gives you the it gives us um, uh, an unnecessarily confident view that just by doing the observations that we've kind of got the right interpretation and application. I mean, I know a lot of people drew who feel like the Bible is pretty much all that they read and they just need to do the hard work of just reading the Bible and, and, and making the connections and all. And the views that they come up to many times are kind of somewhat odd because, There's no understanding that maybe they've landed on a view even through their observation, interpretation, application that's at odds with what the church has always believed. I mean, a popularizer of spiritual warfare came up with that I wrote uh, a critique piece on um, of things that no interpreter of Romans had ever taken.
0: Mm -hmm. Well,
2: he wasn't aware of that because he did not think historical theology was of much merit. You look at all his books, there's nothing in there about flow of ideas and stuff. So I think the inductive method can give a false confidence in how well we're seeing and and how much we really know just based on observing the text. I think it's great to be a careful reader. That's the positive side of of, of inductive method. I think the danger is overly confident that yeah, this clearly leads to, this position and it's like and if you're not aware of some of the historic debates you might come to a conclusion that like no one's ever come to that conclusion and there's all Mm -hmm. kinds of recent debates i could give as an example the lordship salvation debate and on it goes that people came up with pretty innovative views but they were just textualists of the scriptures without knowing historical theology
1: Yeah, I believe it's um, McIntyre who calls this the encyclopedist assumption, Mm -hmm. that that it's it's just a bunch of facts that are equal uh, and just need to be lined up in a certain way. Right. And it's not probably an accident, it's probably an artifact of our culture that this view emerges out of a very strong modernist bent that really wanted to kind of solve the world's ills by putting everything in a... In a fact-based, value-based uh, system that you could argue for um, views of the world. So, um, and it is—I will interject—it's yeah. interesting.
2: It's an interesting irony of sorts that in the 1850s, right when Darwin is publishing his Origin of Species, James Lanier is publishing a seminal work on the inductive method of Bible study that we're back on our heels, I think, a little bit as Christians feeling like we got to defend how Christianity is so rational, just as rational as evolution. So we play on kind of that same playground and we don't realize we're buying into the same assumptions as New Begin and as your mentor Esther Meek talks about the assumptions of modernity and enlightenment and saying, wait a second, we've just redefined what faith seeking understanding, which is the whole historic understanding throughout Centuries of what it means to grapple with these things.
1: So, if you were to advocate uh, a fresh, non-stuck in the present Bible study method, right? Because uh, every, <laughs> everything you're saying about study right. of history applies to the history of the Bible as well. Sure, as scholars, we we do the same work. So, where would you point people differently, or where would you uh, warn them? Well, I, I think you know. I, I will say this, and
2: I don't say this to uh, demean anybody, but just I think it illustrates the point. Is I know I've had people that have said, like Precept Bible Study um, is is great, but K. Arthur is a committed, you know, again dispensationalist thinks Israel ha- is very distinct from the church, et cetera. So on one hand, her skills kind of goes back to what I was saying about inductive study is they're helpful because they get people in the scriptures and pretty rigorous and stuff, but there's a theological system that's kind of already in play. And if you've read or seen any of her books, you know that she's unabashed about that. So, you know, I have angst about, you know, say an approach of doing the Bible study that way. I think a better approach—you've um, probably seen the book that um, is, you know, there's there's a, a commentary, so-called commentary on Revelation, and it puts in columns the four different schools of thought of how Revelation's been interpreted, and so you get the passage, and then you get the interpretation based on these four different schools of thought that disagree. Mm-hmm. And so I think a person that says, believes that these are depicting future events gets to read that, well, there are really responsible interpreters that believe that this mm. happened, you know, all the way up to 80, 70, these are past events. And it sure is talking about the future in an ultimate sense, but a lot of them are embedded in first century realities. I, I, I would like more of that kind of spirit where the person mm-hmm. could go, wow, you know, they're maybe kind of going, if they're a good, open-handed hope learner, they're going, that so-called preterist view of looking at the events the first hundred years, that kind of makes more sense of this passage, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think seeing that integration, that synergy maybe between uh, being informed by history and the Bible, and and frankly, I'll add this too, is that Habakkuk, which is one of my favorite books. And I think I've sent you some stuff in the past on stuff I'm working on with Habakkuk. Um, and I teach that, that book in a lot of different places, you know, you can look at like the saying of Habakkuk where it talks about the Babylonians are both shrewd and how they overcome people. They were really clever and they had this brutal combination of being clever and in their military strategies, but cruel. And you can read that and kind of go, wow, no wonder they were so ominous and feared by Judah, right? Well, it's another, but but it doesn't really go delineate specifically. It gives some some idea of the rampart and some things they did, stacking up stuff. But you get a very pregnant statement in Scripture. You could then read a Bible encyclopedia or a dictionary and study some background of the Babylonians and get a fuller picture of like, wow, no wonder they were so spooky you know right. and that gives a richer thicker more meaningful understanding to your study of the book of Habakkuk, even though it's not saying god's word is deficient but you know god's word also says and as i say in the book god's word specifically says that god's word is not everything meaning that go to the ant if you want to be wise well the ants outside go out it's not in in words in the Bible or understand the flow of history, Psalm 111. So I'd like to see more of that spirit. I think it, um, probably maybe somewhat you guys in academia are a little responsible for this, for kind of balkanizing different, like biblical. you know, you're, you're more integrative. I know your approach, but usually if a person's a biblical, uh, scholar, they just stay kind of really narrow. Yeah. And I would really like To see more people like yourself that have expertise in biblical studies, but you mentioned McIntyre and you got a philosophy background, as I know, and psychology background. You're bringing other disciplines to bear on biblical studies. That to me is really where I think we need to go.
1: Yeah, I I think if my read of my own field is correct. I think it's heading more in that direction. If for no other reason than marketplace issues is there's less positions open and you need to be able to teach a wider variety of classes. Sure. Uh, So that just the nature of the scarcity of resources is causing people to uh, be more generalistic in their studies. Sure. Well, uh, David Moore, thank you very much for your wisdom and this book, Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians.
2: Thanks, Drew. Great being with you.
0: You've been listening to the Biblical Mind podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.